Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. I want to tell you that today's message is intentionally a longer sermon than usual, which is why I asked Mateo and the worship team to reduce the number of songs today and to, you know, get us started with this portion of our time together as quickly as possible. I assure you that the next time you're here, there will be more music and less lecture than there will be today. But today is an important day in the life of our church. It's a good day for you to be here and be a part of this conversation together because we're wrapping up a series about church vision. And more specifically, we are here together for the second half of an important conversation for us about God's vision for the roles of men and women in the church. Now that may sound like a delicate subject to you, and it is. And it'll, it'll be even more delicate for you if you missed last week's message. Because my sermon last Sunday attempted to lay a groundwork, to lay a foundation for the in-depth study of two particular scriptures that we need to engage in together today. And so if, if you haven't heard last week's message, it may leave you with some questions today. And I would love for you to take the time to go and listen to that sermon on our website or on the app on your phone. But to help get us up to speed and to remind us of where we left off last week, we looked at a flyover of the story that is presented in the entire library of Scripture that we call the Bible. And we noticed how in the early church and in biblical history, we were looking for the hierarchical relationship between men and women. And what we discovered together and what I attempted to point out last week is that according to the story of the Bible, in the beginning, man and woman were created in equality, created for a partnership and created for a common purpose, created equally in the image of God. There was no hierarchy. There was no subjugation between men and women in the beginning, in the story that we're told in the Bible. There was no subjugation of women by men until sin entered the story. You see, while we may tend to think of sin in terms of specific and individual immoral acts, the root of sin is based in pride and a boundless love of self. When we think too highly of ourselves, we tend to think less of others and we start to see other people as roadblocks or as a means to help us achieve our ultimate happiness and satisfaction. And so animosity between humans and animosity particularly between men and women was not present in the creation. It was not present in the beginning. It was a result 
of sin. It was a consequence of our pride and a consequence of the introduction of sin into human history. And the transcendent story that flows throughout the rest of Scripture, the transcendent story that we find all the way from Genesis chapter 12 through Revelation chapter 22 is the story of God's mission to reverse the curse that sin brought about in the first three chapters of Genesis. God set out on a mission to remove the hatred that existed between different races. God set out on a mission to remove the oppression that existed between social classes. And God was on a mission to expel the hierarchy that existed between different genders. And so, because of God's ongoing mission, by the time that the New Testament letters were written, by the time that Jesus had died and been resurrected and crushed the power of the curse, it made sense that the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus's followers and missionaries, would write this following statement in his letter to the Galatians when he said, there is no longer Jew or Greek race. There is no longer slave or free social class. There is no longer male and female gender for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is a theme that we can trace throughout the scripture, a theme that's been building since God began this reverse the curse mission. And we can see as we read through the New Testament letters and the history of the early church, we can see that the earliest Christians were celebrating that God had broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made peace between groups that had previously been separated from one another. Words like reconciliation and peace and equality, those were the kinds of words that the earliest Christians used to describe what God accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, as we read through our New Testament, as we read through these ancient letters, it seems puzzling when we come across statements and sections of the scripture that seem to stand in contrast to that reconciling work. It seems puzzling when we come across verses that resist this reconciling movement of God. In fact, there are two particular passages in the letters of Paul that have given the church particular trouble because they seem, these verses, these passages seem to impede the harmony between men and women that exists in the church. Now, I need you to know that Paul's letters have always presented interpretive challenges. In fact, one of the other writers in our New Testament the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus's inner circle, one of the pe people who knew Jesus the best, he wrote talking about the challenge of interpreting Paul's writing. Here's what he said, 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, consider the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Just as our dear friend and brother Paul wrote to you, 
according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. And then I can imagine Peter leaning in to his hearers with his hand to the side of his mouth and saying, some of Paul's remarks are hard to understand. And people who are ignorant and whose faith is weak twist some of Paul's remarks to their own destruction just as they do the other scriptures. And what Peter is telling us here is that interpreting Paul's intent, interpreting Paul's meaning has never been easy. It's not just the 2,000 years of historical distance between us. It's never been easy to understand everything that Paul was trying to share. But Peter is also warning us about how critical it is, how crucial it is, how important it is that when we read and try to translate and interpret Paul's letters that we bring a full measure of faith and that we bring our prior knowledge of God's purposes if we're going to interpret these letters accurately. Peter is trying to say it takes faith. It takes intelligence. It takes knowledge. It takes spiritual maturity and experience. It takes wisdom to understand some of the challenging things that Paul has written. Now, I would never suggest, and I'm not suggesting today, that we will ignore some of the writings of Paul. Because after all, these writings are part of the library of Scripture that we believe to be a gift from God, handed down by God's people from generation to generation to help us learn to trust and fall in love with Jesus. But while we're not going to ignore any passages from Paul, we have to figure out how we're going to read these passages faithfully. We have to figure out how to interpret and apply the passages that Paul wrote. We have to figure out how to reconcile Paul's statements with the sweeping tide of Scripture's teaching that says God is forming us into a new creation of restored equality. And so we're going to try to dive into that today. Today we're going to open up the New Testament together and we're going to dive into these two restrictive passages for Paul. And we're going to, we're going to try to use our wisdom and our spiritual knowledge and the gift of the Spirit to help us discover what these passages really have to teach for us. And I would love you if you'd join us. We're going to start in the book of 1 Corinthians, where we find the first of these restrictive passages. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote, but the name 1 Corinthians is actually misleading because this letter is actually the third of at least five letters that passed between Paul and the leaders of the first century church in Corinth. The very first letter, which was written by Paul, to the Corinthians has been lost to history. We don't have a copy of that letter, but it's referenced in this letter. And we know that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter in response. We don't have a copy of that letter. It's been lost to history, but it's referenced in this letter. And th that the letter that the Corinthians sent was apparently full of a lengthy list of questions for Paul about how they should resolve some problems they were having among their church family. 
What we know, based on the context clues that we find in 1 Corinthians, is that Paul wrote this letter to address all of their questions. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through 14, four chapters of this book, address some of the questions that they had asked about the problems in their worship gathering. And they were having some really serious problems. I'll tell you about a few of them. At their worship services at the first century church in Corinth, there were some men who were showing up and when it was their time to speak in the service, either to pray or to speak on God's behalf with a prophecy, they were putting a cover over their heads, maybe lifting part of their Roman toga and putting it over their heads, which reflected the tradition of worshipers in the Roman and Greek pagan religions. And it was offensive to some of the other Christians in the room who thought that's not what we do here. That's a, that's a pagan thing. And on the other side of the room, there were some women, when it was their turn to speak, they were removing the veils and the covers over their head, even though it was culturally expected for women to wear those all the time in public. And some of the people in the worship services were saying, wait, 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 we don't do, here, do that here. That's not appropriate for women to do that. Now that seems a little bit foreign, but we'll get this next one. There were some people in the Corinthian church who were strategically showing up early to church services so that they could use the communion wine to get drunk before everybody else in the church had a chance to show up. Now this would be a problem, right? I mean, we would recognize this as a big deal. But there's other problems happening at Corinth too. The, every, all these new first generation Christians in this church were experiencing the gift, the supernatural gift of some special abilities from God. There were some of these Christians who were experiencing the ability to speak in tongues, which means to speak in a foreign language about the goodness of God. And there were some of the people in the church who were experiencing the gift of prophecy, which meant that God was giving them a direct message to share with the rest of the church. Now, this is incredible stuff, but all of these people in Corinth thought it was so incredible that they just could not wait to share everything that they were receiving with the rest of their church family. And they were in such a rush, they were in such a hurry to show what God was doing in their own hearts that they were ignoring each other. They were interrupting each other. They were talking over one another. They were hogging the spotlight and the attention in the, to the detriment of their relationships in the church. And so Paul addresses all of their questions about all of these issues. And as part of his response in 1 Corinthians 14, he addresses within just about six or seven verses, he addresses three distinct groups of people who were causing disruption during the worship service. First, he addresses the people who were speaking in tongues. And he, these people were basically just making noise because there was nobody available to interpret for the rest of the audience what it is that they were saying. It wasn't helping anybody. It wasn't building anybody up because nobody knew what they were trying to say. And Paul tells these tongue speakers, he says, be silent in church. And then two verses later, Paul addresses people who are prophesying because they've received a unique message from God that they're supposed to share with the rest of the church family. But these people in Corinth are in the, these prophets in Corinth are in the habit of interrupting and talking over one another in their worship services. And so Paul tells these prophets, he says, be silent. 
And then he addresses women. And he tells women to be silent and submissive and to save their questions for their husbands at home. And it's important for you to know that in all three of these cases, in all three of these sets of verses here, Paul uses the same Greek word for be silent. And because of the tense that he uses, it's not a word that means be silent forever. It's a word that means quiet down. Like, get yourself together, you know, control yourself. And the two, but, but the thing is, these two verses about women, the final pairing there, it's, it's longer, it's more specific, it seems more direct, and so it stands out to us. And as you look at these verses, you can see some of the reasons that these verses are problematic. On the one hand, these verses are problematic for an audience like us. These verses are problematic for us because, for one thing, they, these verses don't fit what we've come to know about God. In last week's sermon, we took this extensive look at the pattern of God elevating women throughout human history. We saw how God valued woman as much as God valued man. We saw how God's image is imprinted on woman as much as it is imprinted on man. And then we saw in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the curse that put enmity or animosity between men and women. And you don't have to be a very good student of history to know that in every war in human history, men have subjugated and dominated women by force. That the curse has been in full effect. But we can see we can see that God's project to reverse the curse is a project of restoration and elevation. Because God is on the side of women, just as God is on the side of anybody who finds themselves marginalized and oppressed. And so we see this movement throughout the story of God and God's people. But the part of the journey that was most compelling to me in the study last week as we looked at it together was when we looked at the life of Jesus. And we saw Jesus not only caring about women, we saw Jesus empowering women. We saw Jesus appointing women. We saw Jesus giving women a task and a commission that was important in the ministry of the kingdom of, of God. We saw the Samaritan woman at the well who became the very first evangelist to go and publicly preach the identity of the Messiah and have people come and find faith in Jesus as a response of her telling. We saw Jesus create space in his entourage for women like Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and Salome. We saw Jesus opening up space so that these women could be part of his disciple group, part of his group of students, part of his group of followers. We saw Jesus make room. And then we saw Jesus select the two Marys, Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, and commission them to be the very first messengers of the story of the resurrection. We saw Jesus task these two women to go and proclaim the good news of Easter before any men even knew that it had happened. And if we look at these two verses in 1 Corinthians 14 and apply them as church law for all time, then we have our work cut out for us to explain why the trajectory of God's esteem for women 
suddenly reversed course between Easter Sunday and the writing of 1 Corinthians. In the meantime, we have to admit part of the reason these verses are problematic for an audience like us is because this, these verses don't make sense in our culture. Paul lived in a completely different era of history than we did. In Paul's day, even the women who were Roman citizens were excluded from voting and from testifying in court and from holding political offices. These verses indicate that women should be subordinate in accordance with the law, but that's not found anywhere in the Jewish law, which leads, leads us to believe that maybe Paul was referencing the Roman law that his church audience was situated. Situated in. But our culture's different. Our situation and our circumstances and our setting are different. In our culture, it's common, it's normal for us to see women serving as CEOs and governors and senators and vice presidents and presidential nominees. It's hard for us in the culture where we live to imagine a context where a woman's gender would make it shameful for her to speak. There are, of course, some cultures in the world where these kinds of gender limitations are in place. We might think of nations like Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, but those are hardly the models for gender empowerment that we want to uphold in the church. We live in a culture where it would be shameful to silence someone because of their gender. We live in a culture under laws that protect freedom of speech for all of us. We live in a context where equal rights are not only the norm, but they're protected under the law. And so it's pretty obvious as we look at these two verses, it's pretty obvious why these would be troublesome for 21st century followers of Jesus who live in the West. But I got to tell you, if you think these verses are problematic for us, these verses are even more problematic for Paul if he intended them to be an edict for all time. You see, the problem is that Paul had already expressed approval and already given instruction and guidance for how women would speak in the church. And it happened just three chapters ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in this very same letter. It would be really difficult, in fact, it would be illogical to try to reconcile Paul giving instructions for speaking followed by an outright ban on speaking. And it's equally difficult to harmonize Paul naming women like Junia as outstanding among the apostles. That we can't reconcile Paul naming this woman an apostle if it's shameful or illegal for a woman to speak. Because apostles are people who are sent out to preach. And it's really hard to reconcile Paul putting a blanket prohibition on women and then writing Galatians 3.28. That verse we mentioned earlier that says in Christ there is no male or female because we're all one. These two verses in 1 Corinthians 14 are problematic from every angle that we look at them if we take them at their face value in English, which is why I believe it's so important for us to learn to read these verses better.
It's so important for us to learn to read these verses more faithfully. We have to challenge ourselves. We have to allow ourselves to read and interpret these passages, not as a standalone statement, but read in the context of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians and read in the context of all of Paul's surviving writing from the first century and in fact read in context of the entirety of the gospel. We have to challenge ourselves to read this through a Jesus lens. And I think that when we do, I think that when we do that, we will find ourselves in agreement that Paul must have been addressing a unique and specific problem that was happening in the church at Corinth. There were various groups of people who were disrupting the church gatherings and Paul asked all of them, tongue speakers, prophets, women, to be quiet, to control themselves because God is a God of order and not chaos. But nobody would argue, nobody argues that Paul was asking the prophets, the people who share a message from God, to be quiet forever. He wasn't asking anybody to be quiet forever. He was asking everybody to put one another ahead of themselves. And that is a principle and a message that fits with the entirety of the trajectory of the scriptures. Now there is a second restrictive passage and we need to deal with it as well. And it's found in another letter of Paul that we call 1 Timothy. Now, unlike 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy is a letter that was written to an individual, not written to a church. Timothy, who received it, was a ministry partner and a protege of Paul's. They worked together. They traveled together. They preached and shared the gospel together. And they planted churches together. But in their extensive travels, when they found themselves making a return trip through the city of Ephesus on the coast of what is now Turkey, they found a church that was in trouble because of some false teaching that had begun to infiltrate the church. This church had become vulnerable to some teachers who were preaching messages that were contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And in particular, there were some vulnerable young widows who had become entranced by this false teaching. And so Paul decided to leave Timothy in Ephesus while he went on to the next location, the next destination. He left Timothy in Ephesus so that Timothy could put down the influence of these false teachers. And so 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul sent from his next destination back to Timothy to give him further instruction and encouragement about how to carry out his very first solo ministry assignment. And this battle against false teaching is the theme of the whole letter. So in chapter 2, Paul gets to some specific, particular instructions that he would like Timothy to pass on to the Ephesian men and women. And he writes this, beginning in verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. 
We get the idea here that some of the men were actually using their prayers as an opportunity to express their displeasure or their anger with other people. They were praying through gritted teeth and praying attack prayers to say, boy, I wish that so-and-so would quit doing this, God. You know, they're using their prayers in a way that's not suitable and not appropriate for approaching the Savior of all of us. And so Paul says, I want the men to pray without anger or argument, lifting up holy hands. And also, I want that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works. They should dress themselves with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Now we get the sense here in these few verses that Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to approach God humbly with humility. The instructions that he gives women about their appearance and their attire, these are pretty specific instructions. They rule out some very specific attire choices. And frankly, these are instructions that most of us have no problem dismissing as cultural particulars. Or else, none of the women in our assembly today would be wearing gold wedding bands on their fingers. But I believe that's not the case. But Paul continues these instructions. And in verse 11, he says, Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Now, this is a notoriously difficult text, and part of the problem arises from some translation issues that exist. I've read hundreds upon hundreds of pages of scholarly writings about these two verses. I've listened to hours of lectures about these verses, and the following issues have risen to the top as particularly notable to me. First, the tone of verse 11 is meant to be positive. When Paul writes, let a woman learn, this is a progressive and countercultural instruction in the ancient world because women were not always afforded the opportunity to learn in the way that men and boys were afforded. So in this verse, Paul is empowering women, inviting women in the church into greater inclusion, greater involvement, greater equality, but he does have some expectations for how these women would conduct themselves as learners. He has some expectations for how the students who are learning about the faith would conduct themselves in those gatherings. Now, when we read most of our English translations of the Bible, we're inclined to think that Paul is saying, my expectation is that the women wouldn't speak at all because our translations say that the women should learn in silence. But that same Greek word that's translated in silence in this verse shows up elsewhere in the New Testament and it gets a very different treatment. In fact, earlier in this very same chapter, just nine verses earlier, Paul is instructing that Christians ought to pray for government authorities. And he says the reason we should do that is so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And certainly Paul doesn't argue 
as he's using words himself, he's not arguing that we should live our lives in complete silence, but he is talking about a life that's peaceable. He's talking about a life that's unassuming. This very same Greek word shows up one book earlier in 2 Thessalonians, and Paul is writing about some Christians who have quit their jobs and settled into undisciplined routines as they anticipate the second coming of Jesus. And Paul says, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And he's trying to encourage these people to get a job, but certainly nobody seems to be arguing that they're on their job, they aren't allowed to speak. And so as we look back at our passage about women at 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, it's easy for us to see how quietness and submission, those are qualities that all novice learners should, should aspire to. These are not degrading terms in a teaching context. In fact, every school teacher I know would love to have a class full of students who were quiet and submissive as they learned, right? Paul seems to be prescribing peacefulness and trying to avoid the appearance of any disturbances among church people. Moving on to verse 12, the very next verse, there's another translation issue here with the Greek word that the Bible translates as to have authority over. This is a word, authentain, that isn't used anywhere else in the Bible, and it's rare in ancient Greek literature. In fact, in the very few cases where this word does show up in ancient Greek literature, in, in literary writings, it's used to describe murder. It says that people should not murder one another, and we don't think that's what Paul's talking about. And so scholars have scoured fragments of ancient Greek correspondence, very informal notes and letters and receipts that have survived antiquity. And the most likely accurate translation for how Paul would have used this word meant to dominate or to force one's own way. And I have to say, if Paul is suggesting that the female students in, in the Ephesian church shouldn't try to dominate the men or to force their own way with the men, then I agree with Paul but not on the basis that the students are women. I agree with Paul on the basis that the students are Christian. I agree that domineering is not a Christ-like characteristic and nobody, nobody in the body of Christ, male or female, should be trying to force their own way in anything because that's not how our Savior showed us how to live. And so I've come to believe that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul is asking the women in the church at Ephesus to act like Jesus as they participate in the life of the church. He's asking them to be peaceable, to live quiet lives, to be unassuming and to be uncontrolling. And as we read the rest of 1 Timothy, we find suggestion that there were problems going on in that church with some particular women who were being assertive and aggressive about their own spiritual knowledge when in fact they had been misguided by false teachers. But Paul is not placing any restriction on informed women. Paul's not placing restriction on gentle women. Paul's not placing restriction on orthodox, Christ-like women in the church. In fact, quite the contrary, 
Paul is holding up mature Christian women known for their good deeds as precisely the kind of people who ought to help in leading the church. You know, as we consider these two passages, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, it would be hard to overstate the damage that has been done over the past two millennia by the church's misapplication of these verses. But I have to admit to you today that I've been part of the problem. You know how sometimes in your life you have some embarrassing moments that you look back on and you wish you could take those back, but instead they're just emblazoned in your memory like a bad dream that won't go away? I can remember being about 16 or 17 years old, active in the student ministry at the church where I grew up and at the challenge of my youth minister who loved me and cared for me, I decided to take on the task of reading through the entire New Testament all on my own from beginning to end for the very first time. In my mind at that time, at that age, it seemed like a very monumental task, but I stuck with it and I plowed through and I discovered parts of the Bible that I'd never read before. And one of those parts I discovered for the first time was 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And I didn't have the tools and I didn't have the training and I didn't have the spiritual maturity to read it with any kind of nuance or discernment. In fact, at that time, I'm not even sure I realized that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. I thought those were the words that Paul wrote down. And I was just reading the book that had been handed to me. But I keyed in on those restrictive verses. And it, it kind of seemed funny to me. And I pointed out those restrictive verses, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. I pointed them out to some other kids in the youth group at church. And it became sort of a running joke among the boys in the group. And so at key moments when some of the girls in the student ministry would do something that we thought was annoying, we would quote 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 as if it was a punchline to a joke. I know for a fact that some of those girls and some of those boys too walked away from faith years ago. Not long after we graduated from the youth group and 25 years later, I'm wondering, I just have to wonder about the lingering effect that my immature application of scripture had on their picture of what God is really like. Peter said, some of Paul's remarks are hard to understand. And people who are ignorant and whose faith is weak, twist them to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. And I'm embarrassed to say that I've been one of the people who has twisted Paul's remarks. And the fact of the matter is that the misguided twisting of Paul's restrictive passages about women has been unimaginably detrimental to the church. In our ignorance, together, we have used these obscure verses 
to teach our sisters and our daughters and our granddaughters that God doesn't equip or appreciate them quite as much as God equips and appreciates the boys. We've taught our women and our girls that their lot in life is to be second-class Christians, relegated to the sidelines of the ministries of evangelizing and teaching and praying publicly and shepherding God's people. We've conveyed a message to our sisters, our sisters in Christ, that if they were to speak a message about Jesus in mixed company, or if they were to speak a message about Jesus while holding a microphone, that somehow that would bring shame on the church because of their gender. And ironically, as we lean so confidently on our understanding of these texts, we ourselves brought shame on the church by the way we've treated women. But you know what's worst of all? The part that's worst of all is that some of our women, some of our sisters, aunts and nieces and daughters and granddaughters, mothers, some of the women in our family have walked away because we gave them a distorted picture of the living God. But you know, it's not just a women's issue. It's not just a women's issue. Because at the same time that we deal with these realities, we have to reckon with the fact that in our ignorance, we have taught our brothers and our sons and our grandsons that God prefers them slightly over their sisters. We have to reckon with the fact that we've taught our boys that they have a privileged status in the kingdom of God simply as a factor of their gender and their anatomy. We taught our men to feel threatened at the very prospect of being taught about God by a woman, even though most of us, when pressed, would admit that it was the women in our lives who imparted faith to us in the first place. We taught our boys that it was their birthright to be in charge, even though our king and our founder said that leadership in his kingdom is a race to see who can humble themselves the most and who can outserve everybody else and who can put the needs of others ahead of their own. No being in charge about it. But you know what's worst of all? The worst part of all of it is that we gave our boys, our men, our sons and nephews and brothers and cousins and uncles, we, we gave them a distorted picture of the living God. No, this isn't just a women's issue, but it's not just a men's issue either. It's bigger than that. This is a gospel issue. This is a gospel conversation and a gospel question. And the gospel says that Jesus came to proclaim recovery of sight for the people who are blind. And that Jesus came to set the oppressed free. And so church, by the power of the risen Christ, 
It's time for us to set each other free. It's time for us to set each other free. It's time for this church, it's time for Heritage to recognize and equip and support the unrestricted spiritual giftedness of every member of the church. I hope as you've listened to this series, you've understood that the scriptures are clear in their teaching that God gives spiritual gifts to every one of God's children without gender distinction. There were female prophets. There were female deacons. There were female apostles. There were female evangelists. There were female preachers. God gifts all of God's children with spiritual gifts regardless of gender, without gender distinction. And the purpose is to build up the body of Christ in love. And it's the responsibility, in fact, it's the obligation of every Christian to use their gifts for the sake of the whole church. And it's the obligation of the church to make that possible. And so it's time. It's time for us to set each other free. And this will be a change in posture for us. It'll be a change in understanding for many of us. And I know, I know change isn't always easy. I'll admit to you that coming around to an inclusive understanding of God's vision has been a journey for me, a long journey. And it was a journey for the other members of our leadership team at Heritage. But I stand before you today telling you that our elders and our ministry staff are in unanimous agreement about the messages that I've shared in this series. And we've come to understand through prayer and study and discernment together that this is where the Spirit is leading us. It's time that we set each other free. I know you'll understand and believe that there's a lot that I've left unsaid. These two sermons have already been longer than usual and my study and research prepared me to say a lot more about these passages and about these issues than I had time to share with you in these two Sunday mornings. And you may have additional questions and you may have concern and you may need further conversation and help understanding where all of this is coming from. And I want you to know I'm offering myself to you as a conversation partner. Anyone who's connected to this church in any way is welcome to reach out to me and my email address is up here on the screen and you and I will arrange the time that we need, as much time as you need to talk through the meaning of these passages and to talk about how they fit into God's reverse the curse mission. But as we close today, let me remind you that the God who broke the curse for you, the God who broke the curse for us, the God who saved us from ourselves has invited us to this ministry of reconciliation. God has invited us to be curse breakers. And we, the church, are on the leading edge of reversing the curse in our culture. And thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the battles have already been fought and the victory has already been won. And we no longer have to settle for being divided by race or social class or gender. For we are one in Christ.